Investing with IBD is brought to you by Alliance Bernstein, a global investment manager offering active, flexible solutions across asset classes. ABS the tools and expertise investors need to get their portfolios ready to navigate late-cycle investing. To find out more, visit abfunds.com. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to Investing with IBD for May 29th, 2019. I'm your host, Arusha Pierce, and returning back to the studio once again is Chris Gessel, Chief Content Officer. Welcome back, Chris. Well, thank you. I'm wondering why you're always having me here, but I appreciate it. I'm wondering why you're always here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On today's podcast, uh, we're going to talk about the markets. We're going to talk about vertical violations, and this is a really interesting concept. And then we're going to end the podcast with another interview from our sponsor, Alliance Bernstein, hosted by Randy Watts. And he's going to speak with Doug Peebles, Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income at Alliance Bernstein, about fixed income strategies. Okay, Chris, let's get into the market. Now, the market continues to be in correction, and right. now it's a good reminder that, hey, this is why we put markets in corrections. This is why we're careful in uh, this type of environment, because sometimes it's easy to think, ah, maybe this maybe is a pullback. Uh, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe I should still be on margin. You know, uh, and, <laughs> and then you learn the hard way that these markets can turn around you know, a lot quicker than you can imagine. Uh, so the environment continues to get worse. So it's important to play defense. You want to be careful of new buys because the trend's against you here. Um, and of course, you want to let the market prove itself uh, before really getting back in. And we're looking, of course, for a follow-through day to put us back into an uptrend. Yeah, the the thing, you know, when the market's pulling back like this, we're in a correction, you definitely want to be raising some cash. You don't want to try to sit uh, through one of these completely invested, especially not on margin. So, uh, you know, even it's really tough to, to sit with things that you have a lot of conviction. If you've got too many other stocks and, you know, everything is going down. Uh, so that's why it makes a lot, lot of sense. If you're going to try to sit with one or two stocks, at least raise a lot of cash. So when they're you know, moving against you, as almost everything was today, yes. you can uh, survive and sit through it. Because the worst thing is to stay overly invested, take the losses, and then right at the bottom, then you sell, you capitulate, and then the market turns around without you. And it's so easy to mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing how well that works, or how easily I get caught into that. But you mentioned uh, leading stocks. There are still a number of leading stocks that are hanging in there, but the list is getting a little bit more yeah, narrow. It is getting narrower. I can tell, uh, you know, each weekend I go through my big watch list of all the stuff that I'm looking at for my own trading, for leaderboard, for swing trader. And it was about 130 stocks maybe a month ago. Mm -hmm. And now it's down into the 80s. And it's just because things have broken through the 50-day, through the 200-day. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm not even going to look at this for a while. And quite honestly, I, I've kept a lot of things on that probably could go off. It could be even smaller at this point. So that that's something to think about because, you know, you look – and you see Roku is making new highs, or was you know uh, recently, and we've got a couple stocks. Uh, in fact, one we talked about uh, that we're going to talk about uh, later today, Anaplan, you know, huge breakout yesterday. But uh, then you also have to keep in mind all the other stocks that aren't working. And this is one thing from last year's level four that uh, Charles Harris said that really made an impression on me, and he, he said. I'm great at picking all the winners during a bear market. The problem is all the losers that wipe out those gains. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, and, and Charles Harris is one of the portfolio managers here in-house, a longtime portfolio manager, yeah. longtime speaker at the, the master's program, too. Very savvy guy. So uh, I, I really took that to heart. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, it, it, you have to learn it the hard way sometimes. I definitely learned it <laughs> back in 2000. And, and so uh, you, you take these environments very, very seriously. Now, now th this, I, th I think this call for the market in correction a few weeks ago mm -hmm. uh, was, pr was pretty impressive because honestly, I thought it was like, oh, maybe it's a little too quick here. Right. Uh, because there were a lot of leading stocks. I thought maybe we'd just keep it under pressure. Um, but 
the more you explained it to me, and let's go over this, your, your, the reasoning why the markets team put it into a correction. And uh, yeah, so let's go into that. Okay. Well, we saw something that I've dubbed a vertical violation. And this uh, kind of, I started noticing this over the last few years and doing research and then seeing it happen in the market. And then it was really about a year ago where Justin and I, in, in uh, doing some market work, really kind of focused in this idea of how some corrections start and they usually lead to a longer period of underperformance, two to three months, uh, sometimes you know, 20% or more, uh, a few failed follow-throughs. So it's a, it's a sign that you need to take notice of what's happening. And so really, the, let, let's go back to October, because th this is a great example. So on October 4th, the market had been kind of meandering around, not doing too much, and then it had a big sell-off, 1.8%. It was a big, and this uh, is on the NASDAQ. This is right. on the NASDAQ, right. right. A big character change. So the market had, had been okay, and then bam, it gets hit uh, really hard. Yep. And then it continues to fall. And on that day, on October 4th, it took out the 50-day. Yes. And I think three on or four- volume. Yeah. Yep. Three or four days later, it takes out the 200-day on a 4% uh, sell-off. So when you get repeated days of selling, and the, the, the 50 and or the 200 day is getting violated, getting really taken out, not just touched and then you know hanging around, but a clear breakthrough. And typically one of those days is really big, it hurts. That's what I call a vertical violation. And so we've seen a number of them in the last decade and they started showing up maybe over the last 20 years. We, we've actually done some research uh, lately and starting back in 1955 on the uh, S&P, and I think there was one during the 50s, and then really we went for like 15 years without seeing one. Wow. And so I, there may be something different in the market. Maybe it's indexing. Maybe it's just the, uh, just the volatility that can that change on a, on a dime. But the the idea is things are going well, and all of a sudden the 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 market changes. You're taking out the moving averages. You're you're selling off day after day, not really getting any sort of rebound, and uh, and then that usually leads to a prolonged correction. We had one in February of last year, which uh, you know that was a, a long uh, period of uh, correction that lasted into what in April or so. Right. So fast forward to where we are in the market right now, and uh, a couple weeks ago. Everything was, you know, seemingly pretty good, it and was. then over the weekend, the news came out about the the trade war being back on, and the, so the, the first couple days, the market sold off, yep. came back, seeming okay, we're all right. Then I think it was what after the market got support at the uh, 50, the right? fifty day, yeah. couple days, the the next Monday. The, the market sold off and it gapped below that 50-day. And that yeah. was the day when China retaliated with their own tariffs. And so that was a big uh, sell-off in heavy volume, took out the 50-day. And so that, and given all the selling that we had seen previous to that, that convinced us that was a vertical violation. And that's why we turned the switch so quickly at that point. And, and I'll tell you that the following three days when the market came back, yes. I'm like, well, this is one that's not going to work. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but then it rolled over, yes. and we made new lows today again. Uh, got support at the the 200-day, uh, bounced off of it a little bit. The put call was at 126, 1.26, so that's pretty high. Yep. Um, but is the put call enough to turn around a market that's worried about trade? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Usually, no, if, it, if it's this kind of... but. Because sometimes it can go up like 1.4. It gets a little mm -hmm. bit more ridiculous, right? Right. So you always need it, – it, it, that's why they call them secondary indicators. Exactly. So for folks who aren't uh, familiar with the put-call ratio, it tracks the number of puts versus calls. So puts are bearish bets on the market. Calls are bullish bets. Mm -hmm. Typically, you have a lot more calls than puts, and so the ratio is often under 1, or maybe it's right around 1 or something like that. But when the market starts selling off and fear runs rampant, you're going to see the number of puts go much higher than calls. And what we've found is when you hit a level of about 1.15, so for there would be 115 
puts for every 100 calls, that's where you can start seeing at least a short-term bottom. Today, it was at 1.26. That's been the highest since during the, the uh, correction that we had in the fourth quarter. So we could see a, a rebound here, but it's, like you said, it's a secondary indicator. I would never hang my hat on it. It's just something to take in with everything else. And it, while we're on uh, indicators, the bulls bears indicator, now it, it tightened up a little bit, that one is still a far way from crossing over. And again, to talk about what the bulls bears, again, uh, a psychological indicator, it's the same idea. It's looking at uh, bullish newsletter writers versus bearish news newsletter writers. When they get very scared and they all think the market's in it going into correction or never coming back, that's usually when the, uh, when the market turns around. And really, they, the way I found it works best is when the number of bears is actually higher than the number of bulls, and that uh, we're a long way from that happening. Yeah, and we had that crossover back in the December, yeah, right? That, and that was the first time it crossed over in two, three years, since 2016, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, it can be very powerful. So what we're, look, so the, the, the gap down that you were talking about um, below the 50 on heavier volume on the NASDAQ was on May 13th. So, mm -hmm. so that, that, was, that was the critical day. And so that's when you guys put it into a correction. So we're, we're in a clear downtrend right now. Uh, now what we're looking for to put us back in an uptrend is a follow through day. Right. Right. And since we undercut the lows, we made a new low today, that count. When we, we start counting for the rally attempt, that's been reset back to zero. We're at zero. We're right. starting fresh. Exactly. So now we have four. The, the soonest we can get a follow through day is four days. See you right. next Thursday. Or no <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so so that's what we're gonna. That's what we're looking for now. Um, we came close. Uh, there were a couple of times where it's like, oh maybe. Like I think a few days ago, like oh maybe we'll, we'll get it when the market started gapping up a little bit, but mm -hmm. it faded very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, I think the next critical thing is we're testing that 200-day, too. Right. And, you know, the news right now is not great. Um, one of the things we've been saying, I think, you know, in past episodes, the obviously trade is the big risk out there. And even if it gets resolved fairly soon, you know, the question in my mind is, have the seeds already been sown for a recession? Now, Germany is right on the edge, or and Europe, and it's not a good sign when Germany, which is typically Europe's strongest economy, is now the one that's teetering. And, yes. and, uh, and so that was some of the news that was pushing the market lower today. And then the yield curve uh, inverted. I know you don't like looking at that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, well, there you go. Because when we spoke about the yield curve maybe two months ago, right. Right, then, then that was the concern there, uh -huh. and now it's in, it started to invert, invert again. Exactly. So that, that's, you know, maybe I'm not necessarily looking at that uh, as closely because I'm using distribution days or mm -hmm. kind of classic analysis, but the rest of Wall Street's looking at it, and sure. they're the ones who are going to create the distribution days. Uh, and, and I know that uh, some folks have said, well, you know, that the U.S., our exposure to the rest of the world through trade is much lower than other countries because we have such a huge internal market. That's absolutely true. But, I, you know, just go back to 2011. I think that was the, the correction where it was just fears of a recession in China that caused that correction that lasted, again, that was a vertical violation, yep. lasted about three months. There were uh, multiple follow-through tries. I guess the one thing about this situation with this vertical violation and the correction that we're in, because it is a political dispute and it could be resolved at any time, although uh, I don't think there are any talks. Uh, like now. Yeah. <laughs> well, Until June, no right? <laughs> yeah, well, at least right now. Yeah. So conceivably, it could be resolved at any time. And that's what makes it tough because you're, uh, you know, you're beholden to the headlines and, and it's rather than kind of the, the, the unfolding of the economy or, or the case in, uh, in Q4, it was really earnings that was, or the lowering of earnings estimates that was uh, pushing the market lower. So that makes things a little tougher. Um, I would still you know, approach the first follow through day with a little uh, caution and uh, it's, not a, it's not a sign to 
go a hundred percent back in. You want to make a few buys. You know, don't don't uh, you know don't bulldoze back in the market. Right. Just see if it starts working. I think one thing to look for is if the market takes out the low of the follow through day. That's a sign to to start cutting back. Maybe yes. you don't get completely out, but that's never a good sign when uh, you can't hold that initial strength. Yep. Uh, so the market is still in a correction. We had a vertical violation uh, that gave us a signal to put this market into a correction. Now, remember, even in the worst corrections, we are always four days away from a potential uptrend. So keep that watch list fresh, but play defense for now. So let's take a quick break. But when we return, we're going to talk about a few stocks that are resisting the downtrend and setting up in this tough market. So stay tuned. Want to find stocks like the ones on this podcast? A lot of the best names we talk about come from IBD's exclusive stock lists, like the IBD 50 and the Big Cap 20. Whatever type of investor you are, we got a list for you. You can access every one of IBD's lists, plus stock ratings, exclusive analysis, and one-on-one -on -one coaching with a membership to IBD Digital. It costs less than a dollar a day, but for podcast listeners, we're offering an even better price. Go to investors.com slash podcast offer right now and get your first two months for only $20. We're back with Chris Gessel on investing with IBD. Now let's talk about a few stocks that are bucking the trend and actually setting up in this tough environment. Uh, the first stock on our radar is Repligen, a ticker symbol RGEN. And now, and I was a, I was a bio major actually in, was in college. Right? Yes, so uh, so I, when I read through this. And I didn't help at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but they're, they're, a, they're a bioprocess developer. And so what they do is they help these drug companies uh, develop these large, complex mo molecules, that, and they're creating them within living organisms, okay? And they're using organic materials. So it's not these simple kind of drugs anymore. Mm -hmm. It's getting much more complex. Um, and these are used in cancer therapies and vaccines. So. So it, it, they're, they're playing this really important role in helping these drug makers develop these, all these really complex molecules. Now, uh, there are a lot of competitors in, the, in this field, and uh, a lot of these guys are, are larger companies, but where Repligen differentiates, differentiates itself from the bigger rivals is uh, by selling technology that targets very specific pain points, and so they're really, they're, it's kind of, it's kind of like IBD, right? We <laughs> have a niche within the market. Right. They're doing the same thing. They have a niche, and they're exploiting it, and they're doing really well. It's over a three billion dollar company, and when you take a look at the chart, it's just been setting up. It, it had a, a really big jump back on uh, April twenty sixth. And it's just been consolidating this move. They got through earnings, right? And and they're they hit a new high today. They kind of pulled back at the end of the day, but they actually made a new high, and I think it's also maybe even an all-time high. Yeah, an all-time high. Right, and it, it's in the you know the buy zone uh, of this cup with kind of high handle. The uh, I'll, I'll just tell you the way this stock got on my radar was looking at the growth 250 on MarketSmith, but something I always do, especially during corrections, is check the list of uh, stocks with RS lines at new, new high. high. Yep. And it's it's just amazing. It's like the quickest way to uncover what's doing well in an otherwise weak market, because the RS line compares a stock versus the S&P. And if the S&P is going down and the RS line is going up, you know you got something that's unusual. Yeah, and, and just think about it. all. Like pretty much all of my stocks <laughs> today in the last uh -huh. few days have been going down. <laughs> this stock is actually finished up. Yeah, you know, it's up. and and so it's just fighting that trend, and and so if you think about it from a larger picture, you have all of these funds and all of these players in the market. They're lightening up. They're dumping shares. They're trying to go move to cash as much as possible, but the ones who hold Argen. They're like, yeah, you know what? Let's hold on to this one. We, we, let's we, buy some. Or let's buy some, yeah. right? Exactly. And and so these guys are setting up. They have uh, some pretty solid earnings. And yeah, you know, a, a lot of times I like these companies that really target a specific niche. 
and and they can exploit that niche really really well because they develop that expertise within that realm and all of a sudden all the whole market wants to go and use their services yeah and the in the the earnings that we talked about uh, last month uh, the big acceleration from five percent to 65 percent in yes. the 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 prior quarter and sales accelerated from 25 percent to 35 percent so that's you know exactly what you want to see really strong growth that's accelerating uh, the the institutional investors, you know, mutual funds and hedge funds, they're they are net buyers. There are more funds that are opening positions and adding to, uh, to their positions than those that are closing them or reducing them. So that's a good sign. Again, this is when I, you know, I'm keeping on my watch list. Maybe we'll put on leaderboard. Um, I, I'm not going to touch it right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're in a correction, right? But. But uh, I, I would really, you know, pay attention to it. And if uh, the market starts moving in the right direction, grab a few shares maybe. And uh, the, the industry group members uh, of this group are, are, are pretty strong too. They, when I look on the, the weekly chart for MarketSmith, um, like there's Tandem is in there, oh, yeah. CDNA mm-hmm. is in there. So, so there, there are a number of other uh, stocks here that are doing well. The medical products industry group, uh, there's a lot of innovation obviously going on within this group. So let's go to the second stock. And uh, this is PLAN, uh, and a PLAN, and the ticker symbol is PLAN, P-L-A-N. They're a recent IPO, uh, and <laughs> what, what's new? Just like every other stock that's done well so far this year, they're a cloud-based software. Sure. And, and, you know, and, and this is kind of the beauty of, of, of what's going on here, and I think it's a great lesson for everyone. Once the cloud all of a sudden became this really legitimate thing five, six years ago, and all of a sudden every company realized that, hey, let's stop hosting everything in-house, kind of like us, right? Let's start to <laughs> let's start to use the cloud and, and become more efficient. You used a lot of these new companies that emerged. All they did was they just started to build better mousetraps, right? They just improved on one industry just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. They made it lower cost, and it was that much better service. And so they all the customer they all started attracting all these customers who were stuck on a, an older kind of platform. So Anaplan's the same way, cloud-based software that helps with corporate planning. You want to talk about really specific? They're right. just focused on that. Now they call it connected planning, and so. A lot of users within the company can go take a look at the software. They can adjust the metrics and see how that affects the bottom line of the company. So it's it's kind of cool. Like you Seems have like enough. We need to get this software. Yeah, we might need to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but in the end, this is it, the bottom line is they they help companies make the decision, decisions quicker, right? And and you know, Chris, you're you're high up. At IBD, you know how long it takes to make decisions around here, right? Well, like any company. Sure, and to keep, and once you make a decision, to keep everyone focused on it and actually get it done. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to check this out. And yeah, so we may, we might need to, to subscribe <laughs> to it. But uh, so th- this is a company that they're they're allowing everyone to get on the same page and make their those decisions better and faster. So. A really, really interesting idea here. It's a new IPO, and uh, but like most IPOs, not profitable. That's true. But like a lot of these software stocks have done well, a lot of great sales. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and this is actually this is a stock that I traded earlier, and the reason was it was an IPO, and it had great sales growth. In fact, I think it's had forty percent or better sales growth for the last thirteen quarters, even though wow. it's only been trading since. Uh, uh, the the third quarter, so or I'm sorry, the fourth quarter, uh, but this is a metric that comes up over and over, and maybe this is not a stock that you want to try to you know hold for a, a long term gain, but they're the trading opportunities with these IPOs when they've got 40, 50, 60 percent or higher uh, sales growth is is been really really good this year, so that's you know I would definitely be interested in it. When I saw it breaking out on Tuesday, because the market's in correction and anything I've, even my little tiny test trades have all gone against me. So yeah. uh, I, you know, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not touching anything right now. And I think what we saw yesterday, it was up huge. I don't know, like 15 or 20 percent. Yeah, 18 percent. It actually had a breakaway gap on earnings. So they reported earnings. They had a breakaway gap. So a very, very powerful type of breakout. And even today, it came down. It was down 3.5 percent. 
but it's still f finished at the upper end of the range. Mm -hmm. It's it's acting pretty well considering the market. Yeah, and, and it's at the top of the buy range. So, again, if you wanted to take a you know like a little test position, pilot, pilot position, pilot position, we'll call <laughs> it that. Uh, you know, this would be actually a good a good place to do it, especially with the the put call being so low. I, I'm sorry, so high. So maybe we'll get a bounce over the next couple of days. But um, I guess for me. Before I go, you know, serious into anything, I'd really like to see a strong follow through. Yeah, yeah. But put put the odds in your favor. Now these guys, they're also in one of the uh, best industry groups. Actually, the best industry group, mm -hmm. number one, the computer software enterprise. And uh, so the industry group members in this group are you're going to recognize a lot of these guys: Shopify, Coupa, Twilio. They're they're all Zscaler, Zscaler. Yeah, they're, they're not all fitting in the little little the little snapshot of markets. Oh, uh, uh, that's true. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's doing really well. Obviously, a lot of these stocks have done extremely well this year. But uh, Anaplan is definitely one to keep on your watch list. And if we get that, when, whenever we get that follow through day, uh, then this one you definitely want to take a look at. Uh, let's go to the third stock here, and this is uh, Insulate. And it's a diabetes company. Their ticker symbol is POD, P-O-D-D. And they're an insulin pump maker. And now there are around 30 million people in the U.S. that have diabetes. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who have diagnosed. Right. There are a lot more people who are not diagnosed or, or at least have pre-diabetes. Probably all of us. <laughs> well, especially with all the donuts that are go flying around here all the time. Don't get me like. going on the poison. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> now, everyone except Chris, because Chris right. eats, is a very, very healthy eater. Uh, but uh, with insulin, uh, they, they have uh, a wearable insulin pump called the Omnipod. So that's their, their big product. And uh, it's an automated, it helps regulate the insulin uh, for people. So it just makes it easier instead of having to prick your finger and check your blood sugar and all this stuff. Uh, all, these, all these innovations going on in the, the medical industry, it's just to make everyone's lives easier to, and, and you know, to help people become healthier. Now, what's interesting with uh, the market, this diabetes treatment market, in 2012, it was $245 billion. Uh, in 2017, uh, 327 billion. So the market continues to increase as people get uh, earlier and earlier diagnosis of <laughs> diabetes. Uh, you know, the market continues to increase. But uh, I don't have this written down here. But I also want to. I read something else where in 2030, the global market. Some of the predictions are like over a trillion dollars. The the uh -huh. mark. The kind of the the addressable market for, for this. So these guys are kind of in this sweet spot. They have this product here that uh, is in demand. It's a pure play within this, one of the few companies that is a pure play. And uh, they're, they're, they're setting up, they're, they're resisting the downtrend. And uh, let's look at the chart here. Uh, they've, they've formed a couple of handle. They broke out a few weeks ago, F currently 5% from the pivot. They can't can pull back in a little bit. Or this week, but still, <laughs> on a relative basis, you want to look at these things, right? Markets coming in pretty hard. These guys are making new highs. They made a new high yesterday, an all-time right. new high, right? And uh, so, really, uh, great relative strength here, and uh, something to keep on your radar. Yeah, and the 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 growth has been great. Uh, they they're just turning profitable. They're a lot like Tandem. Yes, uh, yes. I think they're in the same exact they are same in the market. Same group. Yep, uh, but. You know, we're showing losses, and then uh, they're starting to turn profitable. Uh, and what's interesting is, they're so they're turning profitable from a very small base. So the estimate for 2019 is 520 uh, percent growth, uh, but 2020 is still very respectable at 168. So yeah. you, you know, typically what happens is, you know, you go from one cent to five, and then you kind of stall. And, right. And uh, and it looks like this one is going to keep going. So, you know, it's right at the buy point uh, or right at the top of the buy zone. Uh, the RS line looks good, like you said. Again, the big problem, the market. Yes. And I don't know. I mean, again, I would keep this on my watch list. I've, I, you know, I've, I've tracked the stock over, the, uh, you know, for a while, and I think that that everything that we've been seeing, where 
the diabetes treatments are, are really changing. Everyone is embracing this idea of you know, the, the constant monitoring, yep. the pumps that, that then deliver it. I think it, you know, some are even trying to put the two together. That might be the next big thing. But unfortunately, there's a huge and growing market. Uh, and, and Except Chris, because <laughs> Chris is in a clean eating. Good for him. Just uh, no sugar, no refined carbs. <laughs> so, or very few. But uh, I think that this is like one of those big trends that that we're going to see a number of stocks in the same way like w what you were talking about with the the software stocks in the cloud yes. you know this this is part of a big trend and uh you know with the market uh you know in your in your favor this could be a big winner yeah and and they uh, they went on a great run back in 2017 too mm -hmm. uh at middle of 2017 all the way through the middle of 2018 so that that's another thing i i uh notice about this stock char character of the stock right they've mm -hmm. shown that they can go on a good trend when the market's good right they reset also their base uh earlier uh, uh last year when the market came in hard so they undercut the low of a previous base so it is a stage one base so those are the type of bases that we want to look for because you're shaking out a lot of people and kind of resetting yeah, the, the stock. And they're basically at the uh, they're at a slightly higher price level, but basically the same area that they were a year ago. So you've yes. had a year of sideways action, clearing people out, and and now it's turning profitable. The, the one last thing I'll note is it's got some uh, great sponsorship. Columbia Acorn and PragmaCap Odyssey are both... Uh, uh, holders and uh, I think Prime Cap has actually been uh, adding to its position. But in general, we've got 249 funds that have added or opened position versus 187 that reduced or closed. So net net, funds are buying this. They see uh, that there's a lot of uh, uh, potential here. So those are three stocks that are fighting the trend in this correction. Definitely keep it on your watch list, but remember, make sure that the market is back in an uptrend to improve your odds. Now, after the break, we're going to go to Randy Watts of William O'Neill & Company, and he's back with another sponsored interview. He's going to speak with Doug Peebles, Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income at Alliance Bernstein, about fixed income strategy. So stay tuned. Hi there, and welcome back to Investing with IBD podcast. This is Randy Watts. I'm the Chief Investment Strategist for William O'Neill, and I'm joined this week by Doug Peebles, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income for Alliance Bernstein. Doug, thanks for, for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Randy. Good morning to you. What, what do you see for the U.S. Fed for the for the rest of the year and looking into, into 2020? Yeah, that, that that's a very good, good question. Um, I think that the Fed is in the midst of changing their operating model. And and I think what what they're in the midst of changing that to is one in which they target 2% inflation. We know that that's the underlying driver. Um, I would say that you know f for the last 10 years, they've also been very cautious to ensure that financial markets didn't fall out of bed. Um, and I think that that was warranted, you know, certainly in 2009, 2010, maybe even into 11 and 12. But I, I just think that the, the whole Fed put thing has gone way, way, way too far. But nonetheless, there and, – and the change in policy is, is one in which instead of targeting 2 percent inflation, they say we would like inflation to average 2 percent over time. And if you look at their measure, uh, their, their their favorite measure of inflation, which is the core PCE deflator, uh, we've only touched two percent inflation twice over the last ten years. Right. And and so if you think about the actual inflation relative to the two percent target over time, there's a lot of catching up to do to average two percent over the last ten years. And I think what the Fed has said is we would rather have a situation where if inflation gets to two and a half or 2.6, but the cumulative inflation is still underneath the 2% per annum target, we're going to be comfortable with that. Um, and I think that that, you know, whether or not that's a good idea, we can save for another time to talk about. But I think that at some point in time in the markets, uh, we're going to sit and the market's going to say, well, our expectations for today's inflation print is 2.1 or 2.2. And it's going to come in at 
And the next month, the market's going to be saying, well, we think it's going to correct back down to 2.2 from its 2.4 print, and instead we come out at 2.6. The market is going to look for the Fed to be tightening. And if the Fed is sitting there twiddling their thumbs when that happens, I think the yield curve is going to steepen a lot. Um, and, and so in some respects, th- this whole notion of the changed policy uh, is really not – the market hasn't bought into that. And so that's a, a view that we have that's, that's quite a bit different than the market. I think that when, when uh, Chair Powell came out in March and really started talking about this, and we know that Clarida and, and Williams are driving this bus, when, when Chair Powell came out and talked about this in, in March, the market took it like wow, the Fed isn't doing anything on interest rates, right? They're dot plots. They're not going to hike rates for the next two years. And um, they've also stopped the uh, reduction in balance sheet much earlier than the markets thought. The markets concluded they were worried about growth. And I think that that's the wrong worry. I don't think that they're overly concerned about U.S. growth. They might be concerned about Chinese and German growth. But I think that they're more actually – starting to warm the markets up to their th- new thinking on inflation. So, so I'd like to maybe hit, hit a topic here uh, and get your thoughts, which I think will be interested to our, interesting to our listeners. The yield curve, the U.S. The US Treasury yield curve has been very flat. Right. And there have been points in time over the last year where different sections have inverted. Right. There was a point in time where you had the three-month to the 10-year invert. So that, that is actually not inverted right now. It's gone back to a normal positive slope. The three months to the two-year remains inverted, and there's been inversion between the two and the five as well. So uh, my first question is, what do you think, what really two-part question, the first part is, what do you think of these inversions? Do they still matter? Is the yield curve still as predictive as it was before? And then after that, the second part, what do you see the U.S. yield curve doing over the next year. Okay. So I'm a bit of a yield curve junkie. I, I think that uh, there's a tremendous amount of information value associated with the changing slope of the yield curve. Um, however, I do think that the information that the yield curve is opining on has changed somewhat. And, and I'll, I'll just summarize that and I'll give you an interesting tidbit as it relates to that. Uh, I think that Historically, we've looked at the yield curve as a good predictor for U.S. Uh, recessions, essentially, right? So when it inverts, you wait, you know, 12 to 24 months and you're going to see a recession. And the Fed, in fact, the San Francisco Fed wrote that paper last year, which I thought was funny, pointing out that the three-month to the 10-year inversion yeah. was a great, a great predictor. And then they then they were actually able to get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and and so, so I think that that remains important. But I think the the there's been a change in what the US yield curve is opining on. I think that the the global yield curves in aggregate are opining on the global economy. And so the tidbit that I was talking about about 10 years ago, uh, we changed our modeling efforts for yield curves around the world. We used to model uh, each individual yield curve as its own and then because it's really hard to predict which way rates are going, and it's a little bit less hard to predict which bond markets are going to outperform the other markets. So, so the the notion of what we would do is say, look, if if we think the uh, Japanese yield curve looks attractive to the U.S. yield curve on our models, we're going to do the economic work to suggest is that the right bet to make, and then you know just go ahead and execute that in the portfolios. And we changed from that methodology to saying, let's look at the aggregate of the global yield curves as one yield curve, and then do a separate model that says, okay, where's the differential from that global yield curve relative to each individual country? That was a really smart move for whoever decided to do that. It wasn't me uh, 10 years ago, because it's actually helped us a lot. Uh, I think that the sort of next iteration of that is, well, if there's a global yield curve, is that opining on the global economic situation? And when we talk about that opinion that it has on on the global economic situation, I think it's a nominal growth rate, not necessarily a real growth rate. Sure. And 
And what does that mean? I think that the the impact on inflation and on real growth, so nominal together, is probably more important in today's world than it's ever been before. So, so when you boil that all down, when you think about our yield curve, do, do you see it changing a great deal over the next year? Do you see it steepening or flattening or inverting from here? What's your, what are your thoughts on that? I think once we get to the point when the market digests the notion that the Fed has changed their MO, that we will see a movement towards a steeper curve. Which, now, Which okay. investors might interpret positively for two reasons. I think it should be positive, right? Right. They would think it might signal better growth, and it would also theoretically help financial companies achieve better returns because it's been tough on the net interest margin with the curve so flat. Yeah, totally agree with that. And, um, But I don't think, you know, that that little uh, hypothetical that I gave you that, you know, we got to print 2.2 and on, 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 on markets expecting a 2.2 print, we come out with a 2.4 print. I think we're still a ways away from actually getting that. Um, uh, so, I, so I think that the, the U.S. yield curve when I think about it from just a pure U.S. standpoint, I would say that I think that the yield curve should be, you know, trend steepening over the next three years. But when I think about it in terms of the global economy, boy, it's hard to see that, you know, that that that, that the global growth outlook, while not like dramatically poor, two things. Trend growth is slower now than it's been in a long period of time. So lower levels of growth are going to be the norm. And the second thing is, I think that after several decades of free trade and open trade and, you know, uh, some winners and some losers as it relates to that, I think we're in a different environment right now. You know, we talk about populism in the in the election booth. There's also populism as it relates to policy emanating from, you know, a situation where from a textbook, open and free economic trade is wonderful. Um, but from a practical situation, you know, it leads its way into populist policies that probably aren't great for, you know, for earnings and, and multiple expansion. I guess it's a, it's a two-dimensional question. For, for U.S.-based investors, do, do you prefer right now, U.S. fixed income or, or international fixed income? And then within that, do you prefer corporates or, or governments? Uh, yes, is the answer. <laughs> I mean, we're, the, the first thing I should say is that for a bond investor, diversification is by far your best friend, right? We don't, you know, if you buy Google's bonds, uh, the best thing that can happen to them is they mature at par. Whereas you buy Google stock, you know, it's like a crazy percentage increase. So diversification is good for, for bond people. So, so I like to diversify economic cycles, and I like to diversify monetary policy cycles and, and credit cycles. So uh, for U.S.-based investors, we do think that the starting point should be a dollar-hedged portfolio. But we do like to have the ability to buy different countries' uh, yield curves if, for example, the Fed is raising rates and the ECB is cutting rates, you know, it's 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 not all the time, but that's a pretty good head start in in terms of the overall bond return. It might not be so good for the euro, and so starting with a hedged based uh, investment strategy, I think, is is the smart thing. Now, you you asked about credit as well. I think that one of the important levels of divergence that you get in a bond portfolio is to is to get. Um, the combination of interest rate cycles and credit cycles in a portfolio. And so, so what does that mean? If you look at the total return of, of treasuries and you look at the excess return of high-yield corporate bonds, those two data streams are inversely correlated, negatively correlated. And so what does that mean? It means that you can actually combine those two assets in one portfolio and both pay you over time. In, when you take interest rate risk and you buy a 10-year instead of cash, uh, that that extra interest rate risk that you take on pays you over time. Now, we talked about the yield curve being flat today, so it's not paying you a lot right now. Right. But over time, it does pay you a healthy uh, uh, premium. And the same thing with credit. If you buy a, uh, a double B-rated corporate bond instead of the U.S. Treasury, 
yeah, the U.S. Treasury is not going to default. The double B-rated corporate bond could default. And so you have to get paid an extra risk premium. But those two return streams are negatively correlated. So you get paid for both of them and you combine them and it gives you a free rebalancing when one outperforms and one underperforms. That to me is the best way for long-term investors to think about their bond exposure. So so being involved in both governments and in, and in, and in, and in uh, company debt credit, uh, and are, do you have any thoughts on duration right now in terms of what you're telling your clients in terms of extending or shortening? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that first of all, people shouldn't be so afraid of duration. Um, I think if I, if I look at most financial advisors' portfolios, uh, in in the last four months, they've started to increase their duration because they think the Fed is done raising interest rates. Uh, the flip side of that coin is uh, is they're starting from a very, very low base because right. when rates were zero and people thought the Fed was going to raise interest rates, the the quick math in their head said a bear market in bonds, oh my gosh, we could lose a lot of money, don't have any duration in your portfolio. And and I think that that's right if you're going to own 30-year zero coupon bonds, which have a 30-year duration. Yes, right. you could lose a lot of money in that. But m- most typical bond mutual funds have around a five-year duration. And it's hard over you know a couple of years to have that give a negative return. Even last year. So the Fed did... Um, Four interest rate increases last year, the the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Index was positive. And so I, th- the, I think that the important part for the duration exposure is to say, in a world of searching for negatively correlated assets and so much exposure that people have is in the equity market, um, do you have anything in your portfolio that's going to do well when the equity market does poorly? Right. And that's the real notion of duration. It's not so much that there's a lot of advisors who who have their clients in 100% fixed income portfolios. Now, if, if, if that is the case, you would assume that that client is quite a bit older and living on a fixed income. Um, then you start to say, okay, what is their time horizon? If it's four years then maybe your duration should be four years. And that, that's a pretty good mathematical uh, approximation. But if your client is 50 and they're, you know, in today's world, I'm talking my book here, but, you, you know, you could easily live to 100 and you got a 50-year time horizon, the bonds in your portfolio should really be an offset to the volatility associated with your risky assets. And I don't think that you should be concerned if your if your duration is is five or six years in that portfolio. In fact, I, I think that the 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 notion of being in cash because it doesn't pay very much relative it pays almost the same relative to the to the ten year bond uh, takes away that offset because cash doesn't change in price. Whereas you know if the Look, if if I'm all the things that I said about the U.S. economy are wrong, and all the things that you said about earnings are wrong, uh, and the stock market goes down by twenty five percent, the ten year today yields two and a half. It's going to one seventy five, right. and you're going to want something in your portfolio that does well when the risky assets do poorly. And at the same time, if if we're you know right about the economy and you're right about earnings, and and all of a sudden you get a ten percent return in the stock market. Yeah, I think you're probably going to get a 1% return in bonds. But that's okay because in aggregate, it gives you a better trade-off that both protects some of the downside, gives you the rebalancing alpha that you can get. Um, So yeah, I mean, if if you ask me, do I think rates are going to be at at two and a quarter or two and and three quarters in the next six months? I'd probably say two and three quarters. But the notion of making a big bet on that, first of all, the, the information ratio on on my success rate or anybody's success rate <laughs> in getting that thing right is is low. Um, and it's not so much what you think – like when people say, where do you think that the 10 years going? I'll, I'll give them. And they're like, well, what sort of probability? How about 5248? But then I say, tell me where the stock market goes. You tell me what the stock market return is, then I'm going to have a much higher probability that I'm going to be right about what I say about where the bond market goes. And that's the, to me, that's the most important thing about duration. Do the math. I would advise everybody to sit there and say, where do you actually think interest rates are going? 
put it into a bond calculator and see what the total return is if you're right. I think that that nine out of 10 people who did that would be surprised at how good the return still is because so much of it, you know, if if you do that calculation over the next six weeks, yeah, the price movement is going to dominate. But if you do it over three years, the coupon dominates. And and I think that that is what people should should do. Do that math. Don't just in your market say, oh, bear market. Oh, my gosh, 2008, the stock market is down 55%. That means that I could lose that much in my bonds. Maybe in high yield, you can lose that much. But it's really hard to lose that much in a five-year treasury. And given what risk assets have done, maybe it makes sense to extend your duration a little bit, a as, little a, bit. as an anchor to windward. Again, I think relative to where people are positioned, if I could just give a blanket recommendation is, yeah, extend your duration a little bit. Thanks again, Doug, for, for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Again, this is Randy Watts. I'm the Chief Investment Strategist of William O'Neill. And my guest today was Doug Peebles, who's the Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income at Alliance Bernstein. Thanks again, Doug. Thank you, Randy. Okay, thanks, Chris, for joining us on this episode. It's great to have you again in the studio. Well, I hope to be back. I'm sure you will. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week on Investing with IBD. Now, next week, we're going to have our good friend Justin Nielsen on. And he's going to talk about how swing trading is a great way to stay on the right side of the market and how you can also use this uh, for your longer term trades as well. I'm Arusha Pierce, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton Charts, make sure to go to Investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.